Thanks for pressing play. I'd like to share two things with you off the top. The first is that the accomplishments of a person can only be truly appreciated when you understand the context of their life, where they came from. My dear friend and mentor, Tom Dagenet, used to say, it's not what you achieve that matters. It's what you achieve based on where you started that matters. And some of us start in pretty rough places. Secondly, when I was a teenager uh, and I began to understand that life wasn't just something that happened to you, that life was something that you could actually design, you could create your life, and you could even co-create your life with the people that you love in your life, that was a radical idea for me, that we could choose the life that we want to design, that we would have that much agency as human beings. And of course, we do. So if you're somebody who's interested in radical life design, um, you're going to find this episode incredibly fascinating and inspiring um, because our guest today is world record power lifting champion, Chris Duffin. And he is the world record holder in thousand pound deadlifts and squats. And Chris Duffin is one of the strongest men on planet Earth. Now, that, of course, is a legendary achievement. He's also an author of a fascinating, riveting book called The Eagle and the Dragon, a story of strength and reinvention. What a fucking great title that is, too. <laughs> and, uh, and so all that's an incredible achievement, even if you don't know anything about his background. But then when you understand his background, it's at a whole other level. You see, Chris grew up very poor, homeless, with his family, being radically malnourished, having to scrounge with his uh, siblings and parents for food in some pretty rough areas, dodging gangs, killers, and human traffickers. To say that Chris Duffin had a bizarre and challenging childhood would be to put it very mildly. As a matter of fact... The first home that Chris Duffin ever lived in was the one he bought. And at age 21, to, to help his sisters, he legally adopted them and became their guardian. So if you want to learn how to proactively create a legendary life, you're going to love everything about our guest today, Chris Duffin. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different, and what you're about to experience is a real dialogue, unfettered, unfiltered, unedited dialogue, because around here, we believe that real dialogues can and do change the world. Speaking of changing the world, imagine that uh, in the digital world, your real friends were actually your friends. Well, my friends at Hello App have built the world's first real-life network. We all know that social media is where fake life occurs. On Hallow App, it's your real friends sharing your real life with you and vice versa in real private with no ads. So check out Hallow App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P dot com or search for Hallow App on your smartphone app store today. It's, the, it's a completely different and fantastic new way to experience the digital world. Now, as Joy Ramone said, hey ho, let's go.
I have gotten drunk with people on podcasts that are remote. We just, you know, <laughs> they drink what they drink and I drink what I drink. And, you know, 45 minutes in, it starts to get a little slurry. <laughs> I find actually just like a shot or two uh, when I did a lot of in-person podcasts, like really opens up things, you know, and, and we see that in personal conversation as well. Um, but it uh, just that little bit of lubrication can uh, really seems to enhance the the discussion sometimes, right? Just an observation. No, you're absolutely right. We had an expert on several episodes ago now. I'm blanking on his name, but he's a professor up in Canada and he wrote a book called Drunk. And the book is all about how uh, drinking has led to the modern age. And, and one of the things that happens when you and I have a drink together is scientifically is we're sort of turning down our defenses together. And it's a way of sort of showing that I'm, I'm willing to be more open with you and vice versa, because we're not, we're not going to be on high alert if we're sharing a, a, a whiskey or seven together. I actually have this piece I wrote back in 2014 called Whiskey and Deadlifts. And I, I need to go back and do an updated version, but it actually talks about how alcohol can be used as a performance enhancer. And I talk about the history of it actually being used as, as that, which a lot of people aren't aware of. But I talk about the what actually happens in that, that near-term relationship. And it's I use some of these analogies that you're talking about because there is science to it. There's things that are happening in the prefrontal cortex and with the neurotransmitters that do some things that are really, really unique. And so it's certainly not an endorsement of, you know, excessive alcohol drinking by any means. I never want to say that, but it's, you know, for me, I wrote the whole piece. It was only on days that end in Y. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. the, The child in me is getting out. I wrote the, this piece, you know, you know, suggesting, you know, maybe once or twice a month to have a, uh, a shot essentially before about three to five minutes before a very, very heavy lift and see what it can do. And you'll find that you actually set a personal record for most people that it enhances the performance. And, and so there's some of it is just that as far as the neurotransmitter effect, which is, I, I liken it to when you're younger and you're you're out with your friends and you see somebody at another table that you want to go introduce yourself to and everybody says have a have a shot of liquid courage and so if you have one liquid or courage, a drink yeah what happens is you end up like your inhibitions drop a little bit your mood whatever you're in is heightened your thoughts about the negative outcomes all the second talk the second guessing yourself all that kind of dissipates and in fact, you get this little bit of shot of energy combined with it as well, which I said, it enhances it. It's known as a depressant, but it's very dense. It's seven calories per gram it's close to fats, but it's uh, preferential. It goes straight in front of carbs, even ketones, all this sort of stuff. And if you walk over to that, that table and introduce yourself, that conversation is going to be better than it normally would be, just like we're talking about. Um, you would perform better. Now, if you sat there and had six drinks before you go over, you're going to go over there and make a fool of yourself. So it's all about timing and amount. But this, if you tell that analogy, people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But the same thing can happen in many types of environments. And then physiologically, I talked about the energy component, but there's also a few things that happen with a spike in blood pressure and a lowering of the, the heart rate uh, as well. 
And so the spike in blood pressure from like a lifting perspective is going to make weights feel lighter. And then the lowering uh, of, of the heart rate causes um, better control, better. So like for shooting, like the by the biathletes, they outlawed alcohol a long time ago because they found nine out of 10 people from a shooting perspective that it is a performance enhancer, but they would be so drunk at the end of the ski sections that they'd almost be following down when they went to go, because uh, you, when they went to go shoot. What could be better than a bunch of, so, bunch of folks on skis with guns drunk? So, yeah. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so it's, it, it's just, it's really interesting because it's like, you know, obviously, you know, from a performance standpoint, alcohol is going to cause you to, you know, lower your testosterone. It's going to increase your cortisol. It's going to reduce your, re your recovery rates, all this sort of stuff. But that's, everybody's always speaking to alcohol abuse when they quote this stuff and not like, Hey, what's an ounce or two timed at the right amount, you know, once every couple of weeks or a couple of months on a, on a key performance thing. If you're concerned about that, like I, I, yeah, you might need to look inward because that that level is not going to have those negative consequences and using it in that manner it it does a lot of things so but the how that works from a neurotransmitter standpoint so it's affecting gaba and a few other things so what it does is actually gets you like in what's similar to what we call the flow state a little bit easier because you have this forward looking of all the things that could go wrong the I don't make the lift. I injure myself. The second guessing yourself and you know, it doesn't have to be lifting. You can use this in any environment. Um, but it, it frees you of this future thinking about things and gets you more in the moment and then heightens your emotional state and all the things that are around that, which is why, again, from a conversation standpoint and all these others, it puts you more right there right now. Uh, than anything else. And so anything that can use that, you know, let's say a podcast, a public speaking, uh, stepping up for a big lift, uh, all these sorts of things can have an effect on that, but it's timing in amounts because it goes really quickly to being a negative piece. But so many things in the world, people always like want to put things in a bucket or say, this is a bad food or a bad this. And, and it, it it's not. They're just things and how you use them. You can really manipulate things to, to get elicit different effects. Sorry for the tangent, it's but it's, say that. It's, 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 it was no, no, there's no such thing as a tangent around here. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's a tangent, <laughs> but you know, I can relate to it um, from a speaking perspective. Uh, generally, particularly if it's going to be in the afternoon or evening, maybe not so much in the morning, although I think drinking in the morning is just fine. But yeah, a shot of whiskey before going up to give a talk is fun. And then the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking, you know, I've skied on and off the bulk of my adult life. And for most of it, I, I never ski, I never drank on the mountain. And then I think I was in my late 30s. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna, it was a nice day, spring kind of skiing. I thought, I'm going to have a beer with lunch. And afterwards, it's just one beer. Mm -hmm. uh, and afterwards, I didn't ski with as much sort of power, for sure. I was definitely had my foot a little bit off the throttle. But the flowiness was incredible. And, and I'm somebody who's rigid in my body anyway, and I have a medical thing and blah, blah. So, so anything that relaxes me a little and gets me a little bit more 
limbered mentally and physically. And so, um, yeah, I think a beer at lunch when you're skiing is a great idea now. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's rather interesting. So like I said, people can carry it when I, when I say things like that, or my article, like take it as like, oh my God, you're endorsing that. Don't you know, kids follow you. And I'm like, read really clearly what I said, you know, like, <laughs> cause, uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, what I, you know, there's so many things I've been really looking forward to speaking with you about, Chris, if you could. And look, if you don't want to go a certain place, by all means, kick me under the table. But I would love you to take me back to your childhood. Yeah. So my childhood is definitely an interesting story. And I I, I just want to preempt it by saying this is a, I tell the story now and I've gotten comfortable with telling this story because it really shows people how far you can move the needle in life with the right approaches to things from a mental aspect. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a woe is me story. And in fact, it's not a lot of like my story anymore because I am a creation of like what and who I choose to be now, but it is a story of growing up in the wilderness, growing up homeless. This is in Northern California and this is in, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, my, my parents did not want to be part of society. And so it started with some homestead living and then kind of transitioned to living in tents, maybe during the school year, living in some con uh, condemned homes closer to civilization or, you know, sometimes a place that, that, that wasn't maybe, but oftentimes it was lacking either running water or electricity or both. And I, I tell the story is actually opening for my, my book, the Eagle and the dragon uh, starts with me at six years old and we've got beams lashed up into the trees because there's rattlesnake dens all around us. There's no, we're not, when I say camping, we're not at like some public campsite. We're out in the wilderness. There's like, you take dirt roads and then you get to a spot and then you hike up the trails and you find this little stream where we're at. And we've got beams lashed up in the trees. And when you say Northern California, you're not talking about a part of San Francisco. You're talking Northern, Northern California, yes. right? <laughs> so, uh, so for anybody that knows the area, this would be, uh, the Trinity wilderness was where a lot of this happened, which is East, just east of Humboldt County. So Humboldt County was really well known and I think still is today for the, the weed growing. And there's really interesting. There's this documentary, uh, called Murder Mountain. And this, uh, I think came out in the last couple of years. I, I looked at that documentary, watched it and it's like, it's, I watched it with my wife and she's like, Oh my God. She's like, that's all the stories that you tell about serial killers and human trafficking and murderers and police corruption. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what it was. In fact, when I looked at it, we lived 50 miles a little bit deeper. So, uh, and this is where I was in Trinity County. It's a little bit deeper into the wilderness, uh, than where, uh, but that's, you know, that was a choice of what my parents did because that's what they, how they were trying to try to make a living and forge a path outside of society. And so, you know, six years old, and, here and I am. that choice. Yes, Chris, it, it, like a lot of homeless people, um, certainly that I've talked to in the past, 
Um, they become homeless or when they're homeless as children. I have several friends who are homeless as children. Um, you know, their, their, their parents, one or both of them fall on economic hard times. They lose a job or something along those lines. And it just sets a cascading motion. In this case, it, it was it more of a choice to just exit from the world than, than the typical sort of financial hard times? Or was it both? Or tell me about that. It's a little mixture of both. So it was definitely a choice. Like my mother, she did not want, she had her reasons for not really managing or dealing with authority very well. Highly intelligent. She, you know, she had a scholarship to go to school as a chemical engineer. She was top of her class down there in the Bay Area with a class of like 1,500 people as a student athlete. And she dropped out of school college and decided that this is what she wanted to do and that she was going to do that. Now, when you're choosing to live in that year, it's not like you've got a lot of resources to just like live this super, you know, beautiful, altruistic life in the wilderness. Like you're scraping to make ends meet. I mean, there was, you know, I, I remember one winter we were sitting there eating. We had 50 pound buckets of, of, of beans and a 50 pound bag of rice. And we were rationing that on a daily basis because we had no other food. That was it. And we're getting to a spot where one day you know, I'm like, mom, what, why are there little black heads in my rice or the little black dots on the rice? Well, ends up, uh, weevils had gotten in there. And so we end up having to, to throw that out. And I remember watching over that winter, my parents just become super small. They lost so much weight, making sure that we had food. Um, and that, would put them in a place where they didn't have anything to eat. And so they lost substantial weight. And that's, you know, we were foraging for mushrooms, killing, you know, poaching deer. And like I said, that, that first story, you know, I was being taught how to handle and capture live rattlesnakes. You know, we were killing them so that we could sell the skins and try to make ends meet. But also I was being taught at six years old because that was the environment we lived in. And I needed to to have that for my safety. So once you're in that environment, like the escape and the being able to, to move forward when you've got nothing, it is really hard. Now, part of that still was always uh, a choice, but it was not an easy living. And, and that's why I pointed out the, the movie murder mountain. Cause it's like, my parents were really, really well read. And we, you know, our Avenue for entertainment was the library and, People like, oh, that must have been, you know, really amazing. Like that movie, Captain Fantastic. And I'm like, yeah, there's certain aspects of that, but not everyone that's living in those areas is doing so for altruistic reasons. And that's where you end up with their murder mountain story with murder. Like I dealt with a serial killer. I dealt, my family, you know, was impacted by. How old were you, Chris, at that point? Uh, that How old was, were you when you were dealing with traffickers and serial killers? Uh, that was first grade through fourth grade. So uh, the first encounter was, I think, in 1985. I can't, I don't know the exact year, but uh, he was yep. a police officer at the time. We were living in this uh, this area that used to support a mill that was in the area. So these all these little tiny homes, and and so we were in there, and he tried to uh, take my mother on uh, some drug charges because the, there was a table full of weed and was doing so when no one was around. So I had to chase, she sent me down the road because there was rumors. Again, this is a really remote area. 
So this is a small town, the whole valley, there's like a hundred people in it. And it's an hour to get to the next town, which is only 24 miles away because of the windy roads that only had 5,000 people. And then, you know, another hour and a half to get to this, what people would normally call a small town, right? But there was rumors that you know, people would disappear, women would disappear around this, this police officer. And so she sent me to go running and find my stepdad who was at a party at one of the other houses in this little uh, uh, complex. And so they brought everybody down, watched and watched her leave. And then he, they, they end up taking her like one county over, I think, just to be difficult. So it took like several days for to round up a vehicle to be able to go get her uh, for my stepfather. But a year later, he had become sheriff. And that's when he found us. We were up in the mountains uh, living at that period of time. And they took myself and my younger brother and my three sisters all into custody. And my stepfather and mom went running and they never caught my, my stepfather. They got my mom and put her in jail and they put all of us into state care. Well, this is where the story gets a little wild is that my mom is in jail, like, and it's all running through her head and the stories around the community. And she's like, this doesn't add up. Like there's something really weird. And she, she contacted the DA uh, with this story saying, Hey, I think that the, the sheriff is part of a human trafficking ring and he has my children. And, and that actually ended up being the case. They ended up, uh, he ended up going to prison along as, as well as the, the man that had my three younger sisters, uh, because they were taking these children from this, you know, small, poor, remote community when they had that chance in selling them into a human trafficking ring, which is where my sisters were. And they caught him as he was boarding. This made national news. They caught him as he was boarding a plane to leave the country in the course of this. But a number of people in, so it was in concert with uh, Child Protective Services. So there were some people in Child Protective Services, some police officers and the sheriff uh, that were all in concert. Well, additionally, there was the people that disappeared around the sheriff, particularly women. He got out 20 years later and tracked down my mother in Eastern Oregon by that point in time. And the sheriff who went to jail for all of this yes. got out and tracked down your mother yep. 20 years later. Yep. So yeah, he was in prison for 20 years and she, she ended up running uh, at gunpoint and holed up in another place in uh, Eastern Oregon until the police ended up coming to his property. I think it was like six months later for poaching or something. I, I don't know what, I think that was it. They ended up finding four women dead and buried on his property because he was a serial killer. And, and so that, uh, you know, that first time when I ran, you know, down the street in this little, in Northern California, I saved her life. Like that was, it's, it's like, it's, it was pretty wild stuff. So that's some of the stories. From, and you were, you were a little boy. Uh, yeah. I was. I mean, you're a little boy. So yeah, it was third grade that I spent in uh, state care. Uh, my grandparents ended up being able to get us all back out uh, for a period of time while my parents decided to get out of the, the drug trade because they didn't want to have this, something like this happen again. And they relocated to, to Oregon, but pretty quickly kind of fell back into the same 
same thing, not the drug side, but the living away from society. So at this point now it was, we were prospecting, mining, and that was, that was, you know, that's where they spent their time with, you know, like I said, love, love of reading and things like that is reading and consuming everything geology related. And so we ended up basically in the same situation, you know, camping all summer long, finding some place close to town during the school year. Again, it was still oftentimes a place without either running water or electricity. And that's was all the way up till high school when we finally got a mobile home, you know, didn't have, didn't have doors on the inside, had sheets hanging, didn't have a kitchen, but it was a place that was stable for the three, four years that I was in, in high school. And so that was, that was a nice thing by that point, you know, alcohol abuse of my mother and my stepfather was getting really bad. A lot of, it was just not a good living environment by any means. So I didn't spend a lot of time there. I was either working in sports or in school, trying to one, bring in some money to help the family uh, pay the bills. And, and then uh, I, I did really well academically, athletically, got a full ride academic scholarship uh, to go to school for a dual engineering degree. About a year and a half into that, I was taking time away from my family because anytime I'd call or visit home, I'd have to give them money. And so I was, you know, working, going to school. And, and so I wasn't talking with them much and things got way worse. Apparently I had some sort of stabilizing effect on the family. So when I left, things got really bad. And so I ended up taking custody of my three sisters. So while I was, I started that my senior year in college and then continued that while I was working my career, working on my MBA. Uh, so all through my early twenties, I was raising my three younger sisters through all their teenage years and helping and guiding them, you know, towards some better choices in life and getting them out of dealing with a lot of the trauma and things that, uh, they'd been through over the course of that. And so that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a pretty interesting transition for me because it was like moving from this poor kid from the sticks that didn't, wasn't super well socialized, to, you know, moving into a professional world, figuring and sorting this stuff out. And I actually decided to chase this career. I went to school for engineering, but I decided to chase leadership and management, like the most challenging probably thing for me, uh, rather quickly. And I actually started that. I, I worked basically full-time all through my college as well, just because, you know, you don't have a fallback plan like with me, like, it's like, where do you go? So yeah, I had some money to pay tuition and books and, but so I was already working on my career by the time I, my senior year, I was already working full-time in the industry. And so I ended up, doing really well in that arena. So I ended up advancing. Uh, like I said, I got my MBA to kind of match where I was actually going with my career. But within a period of time, I, I advanced to where I was the corporate executive level. So either uh, director of operations, uh, a general manager of facility, basically uh, running all the operations. And I, they would I was sought after. I'd, they'd come in and hire me to turn around a division of a company or one of my bigger projects. I took a, uh, a failing aerospace company and I turned it around. It was one of the, who was about to lose its contract with Boeing. 
It was financially not solvent. Quality delivery were horrible. I turned it around over the course of several years to become the number one supplier in the world uh, for Boeing. And so that was that was pretty cool. Walk through this the whole sale process. So went to auction. I was dealing with um, it, it pretty well. So I, was, I did this in my early 30s, right? And then, and so the experiences there dealing with bankers negotiating deals, like and this is all pretty high level dealing with the Boeing executives on, you know, just to be able to maintain the contracts through through all of this. So, um, so I did similar sorts of things in the automotive sector, uh, heavy and uh, heavy equipment, uh, industrial equipment. Uh, sometimes you know, it was taking a, a a company and making them from a global or a regional to a uh, a national to a global presence, uh, revamping. Like I said, it, I, just, I, I was an operations specialist, and so that's what they brought me in to do, and I did that. And so, uh, so I was pretty pretty wild for this kid from the sticks to be doing. And then uh, one day yeah. I woke up and said, "What? What am I doing?" <laughs> well, and maybe we could pause there for a second. Um, I mean, your story, of course, is breathtaking. So many things to double click on. One of the first things that comes to mind, Chris, is, and of course, I'm no doctor, but uh, I've had a lot on the on the podcast, <laughs> and I've done a reasonable amount of reading myself. And one of the things we get taught is that as human beings, one of the things that we need to survive is a sense of place, a sense of home, a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of love. A place where, you know, fight, flight, or, or relax, <laughs> right? And so a place to, to be loved, to be warm, to be fed, to be et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and human beings tend to be nest makers. And while, yes, it's fun to live on Airbnb or go camping, and I'm a backcountry hiker and skier, and I love all that stuff. But, you know, the great thing about uh, doing a backcountry trip is, is at the end, you have this amazing time and great stories and photos, and you come home and you have a nice shower and your nice bed and a nice meal, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I, I guess my point is, it seems to be, Chris, that for most humans— Having a home and all of the things that that means is a huge part to having a solid foundation from which they can build. And if I'm remembering your story, you don't get to a mobile home, which is not a really working home, but at least it's some walls and some shelter until you're in high school. Is that right? Yeah. And so how does one create a life? build a personality, build an intellect like you have. I mean, clearly it speaks who you are, speaks so loudly. I can barely hear what you're saying. If you, if you know that expression, <laughs> how do you have such a foundation as a human being when till your mid teenage years, you didn't have one of the core elements that we are told and seems intuitively obvious is required to have a, a good life. That's a good question. And some of the things that you may not capture in that story is how close knit we were as a family, despite all the struggle and the amount of time that we spent together. So everything, you know, in a normal household, you know, parents are gone working all day and they're coming home late. Like we did everything together and it was really us against the world to trying to survive. Like I was working to help support. I was, you know, it's, Family was everything. And, but there's also another tidbit of that. And that is, I was the one, you know, responsible for helping 
raise my siblings during the course of this. And in later years, I was the one that I had to be there. I had to be present. I, even though I was dealing with some of my own struggles and things, I was able to use that to, to push those aside. I'm not saying that's a wise move, but it put me in this survivor type role. Uh, you know, when, you know, let's say a plane crashes and a person, you know, you're on a mountain and what do they do with the person that's freaking out and trying to struggle? It's like they put them in charge of someone else and that helps that process. And so that was me. And I, I chose whether knowingly or not to, to be there all of the course of my life where I could have let everything unravel around me. And I, that is the people that were, that grew up in the environment that I was in. Yeah. They're either dead in prison. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's such a powerful place. Do you remember making that decision or did it happen gradually? Or how did, how did you become this very young, uh, really boy, young man who decided I'm going to put my family on my shoulders here? So, you know, in the earlier years, it was just that responsibility, I think was, was put on me as well as I hearing from my mother, I was, I was a very caring person. I was there, even though I was much older than my siblings, I was really involved. I would play with them, but they would go out and be mining and I would be there taking care of them. I would be like, I was there with them all the time. Now, later years. So when I was in college, my sister reached out to me. One of them had, I really don't want to go into the depths of what they were dealing with, but they were living on the streets uh, because things were so bad and toxic at home. Uh, they had, you know, their 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, moving to the largest metro areas in the state, uh, living on the streets, living in drug houses. And what do you do? I mean, people want to say, commend me for what I did, but like, that's what you do for family. And so, was I in the best situation to, to take that on? Maybe not, but I could. So yeah, that's, I, I, I made the call to do that. I was able to get a hold of my, so my mother had had a mental breakdown and was out in Montana somewhere. I had her found out the paperwork and had her sign off on the documentation so that I had custody of them. And so legally you were effectively their, their parent. Yeah. You were their legal guardian. You, yes. you had legally essentially adopted your sisters. Yes. Yeah. And how old would you have been at that time, Chris? I was 21 when I started that process. And how old would your sisters have been roughly? Uh, well, there's some variability. So it's, I took ballpark. one, then I took another one. And then, so it was, from 21 to like my 30 years old was the course of time that I was raising them. Uh, they ranged when I yep. took them between 14. I, yeah, I had most of them between the ages of 14 ish to 18 or 19 by the time they, yep. they, they moved out. So yeah. Yeah. So those seminal teenage, those seminal teenage years for all of us, where we go from being uh, kids to being adults and puberty and all of that stuff, all of the complexity of that and the confusion of that, you guided your three sisters as their legal guardian through that entire process. While I was trying to figure out life myself, which was a, a it was a new thing. Like I understand that the upbringing I had was very different than most. And did you have a home during that period? Yeah, 
I bought my first house when you I did. was 21 years old. I was uh, president of the engineering society at the school. I was working full time as a manager in a, a window and door factory. I didn't have to go to school much my senior year. I just had my senior project because I had essentially finished everything a year early. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, it was a small community. So the house wasn't like super expensive or anything, but I had a nice little 1800 square foot home. And then, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I was at that. Uh, I sounds like, man, you're an overachiever at the same time I was dealing with my own alcohol addiction issues and kind of navigating, uh, that space of, of my life. And because that was, uh, that was a, that was a challenging time, like figuring out, you know, how to socialize and how to interact. And I, I went overboard, you know, I was, I worked hard and I played hard. So I, I was a, a known figure in the community for, you know, like you want to have a good time, you go hang out with Chris and, and that's, you know, I tried to justify that, you know, with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm demonstrating to my sisters, like if you get to work, you get to play and, and, but, uh, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a healthy environment for myself. So, uh, by the time it was a couple years in there, I decided I, I had to X, I'm like, this is killing me inside and outside. And so the oldest of my three siblings was turning 18. So I gave her the keys to a car and the keys to the house. And I picked up, quit my job and moved to the other end of the state, 400 miles away and uh, crashed at a, a friend's apartment for two weeks while I found a job, rented a place and then brought, uh, brought the, the other sisters there. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, that's where I was at life. Cause I'm like, I, I realized you I wanted a fresh start. I, yeah. I had to, I had created such an environment around me. I was trying to make the changes to, you know, the, I was getting really pushing forward on my physical, you know, uh, fitness and trying to push my career. But then I just couldn't escape it. My, the whole community like knew me, my friend, like I couldn't escape it. And I'm like, you know and what? And you were that guy. I was that guy. I'm needed like, to be that guy. And I couldn't escape it. So I'm like, you know, I just need to, to pick up stakes and move into a new environment because this is where I'm going to go. And that's when, you know, within a month, you wanted to be a different guy. And so within a couple months, I had signed up one to be a competitive uh, strength athlete, uh, do my first competition and uh, started my MBA. So I did both of those within three months of moving to the, the large city in Oregon, which is Portland. And you moved all your sisters there as well. So you yep. could continue caring for yep. them. Well, the oldest stayed with the house in Klamath Falls because she was 18. She was working, had her, she'd gotten her GED. And so, you know, we decided you know, she was, she was moving that direction with her life. And so, uh, I had that there, she ended up moving and I sold the house later. Uh, so that was, uh, but yeah, I, I restarted, pulled up everything. And, uh, I was just like, I have to remove myself from this environment. I kind of walked into it, but that created that part of my life wasn't necessarily bad because we talked about alcohol on the outside of this, the outside of this and it opening up conversations and aspects of your personality. Like I was this super shy, very reserved kid, couldn't engage and like, it was the thing that allowed me to realize some other aspects of my personality, realizing, oh, you know, I, you know, people are drawn to me. I have a level of charisma. I can engage what, like all this it brought out. And that's why I create, that's why I became that person in that community because I was that person. 
and it helped me get there. And there's some positive aspects of that, but I went too far down that path to an unhealthy level. You know, cause imagine, you know, this, this poor kid that's not very, that hasn't had a lot of experiences like that all of a sudden discovering, oh, you know what? I'm a guy in my early twenties. I'm attractive. Girls like me. My personality is engaging. I have charisma, like bam, out of nowhere. Like, Plus you are developing muscles, right? I mean, you're starting to look exactly, maybe not quite the way you look now, but you were on the path. You didn't look bad. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Actually, well, cause that always been a part of my life. So I started lifting in 1988 at uh, 11 or 12 years old. Uh, and that continued through high school. And that was actually a so big by your mid twenties. You were, you were looking pretty, pretty big and pretty strong and pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah. And so like, but imagine, you know, like coming from that background and then having that experience, like that was just a little too much for me to absorb and it just went overboard. And so I, I did the right call, I think, and just cut ties and moved and said, we're starting fresh. And, uh, that's, that's, that's what I did. So. This is another thing I've been very much looking forward to uh, speaking with you about. When did you know you were different? Um, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think I know what you mean by, by different. And I'm, you know, I could point to things and say, oh, I'm a really smart person or this or that. That's not reality. Like we're all like people don't understand how the oftentimes the brain works and go, Oh my God, you had the, you're valid Victorian. You had the highest engineering GPA and you never even bought books or attended classes. Like my brain works in a manner that allows me to be really good at tests. But the thing that is different is my ability to be able to see this interconnected components uh, between things that most people wouldn't realize there is a connection and in these vastly different arenas and can be able to connect those dots. But that's just my particular skill and view and lens. And we all have those. And so understanding uh, that, and I'm not sure exactly when I really, really understood that, but I knew that my brain worked different than a lot of people's probably at a fairly young age. And even in my lifting, you know, when I started competitive lifting in 2000, you know, I didn't tell people my crazy goals, but I knew that I was going to be good. I knew that I could use my thought process to be able to, to do things that others wouldn't, not just by going into the gym and being a meathead and, you know, busting my butt, but there's, there, I didn't know how I was going to do it yet, but I knew I was going to do phenomenal things. And so I started tracking my progress and things very early on. I started filming all my lifting, uh, and putting that on YouTube, I think in like, 2006 or seven, because I knew that where I was going to go, it would be really interesting for people to look back on and go, Oh my God, this whole journey is, is documented. But at the time there's nothing there that would say, Oh, you should do that. But you can't film the documentary about how legendary you are unless you start when you're not legendary. (laughs) So, uh, which by the way, there is a documentary that's coming out this year. Uh, so it's actually just, uh, on the, is it on Netflix? Remind me a little bit. Well, remind me what's going on. It should be on Netflix. And what's the title, Chris? Do we have a title yet? Grand Goals is the title. Right. I've seen the promo. So just as a, it's a broad spectrum before we, so um, I spent five years chasing this goal of being the first person to squat a thousand pounds and deadlift a thousand pounds. There's like half a dozen people that have done one or the other, but nobody's done both. And I wanted to do them 
for repetitions as well, just to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, like this is what I'm going to do. And so that took me five years. I accomplished that two days before the the world shut down in 2020. So I think it was March 18th or something like that before doors closed on the 20th. So, so the, the, the fun part about this is you achieve one of the greatest athletic achievements ever. And certainly one of the greatest achievements in the history of your sport. Fair, fair characterization. Yes. Yep. Under normal circumstances, you would have been celebrated in the mainstream athletic world, in the mainstream world, maybe you would have been on, I don't know, Good Morning America and the Today Show and et cetera. Who knows where you would have been, but probably fairly high profile. And in the athletic lifting world that you live in, you would have been the, the mayor of Legendaryville for a very long time. And as people were starting to get excited about your achievement, all of a sudden, uh, we're not talking about that anymore. Yeah, it was it was a little surreal, you know, because I did the. I did the deadlift years prior. And so the squat was the the final roll up of it. And I spent a year publicizing what I was going to do. It was going to happen at this, uh, the largest uh, equipment con- uh, convention in the world. It was taking place in San Diego. And I was going to do this as an exhibition feat at that event. Well, the week, like Monday before it happened, it, it got canceled. Right. And then it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? I was at this point in my, my training, my life, and it's just so over the top as far as a feat that it couldn't be extended. You couldn't like put it off a month or go, you know what? We're going to come back. Because you had trained to that day. Exactly. We're going to come back next year. Like this was a thing that was going to happen on this day or within a couple days. It's just like an Olympic athlete would train to peak at the Olympics or a fighter would train to peak on us on a certain Saturday night. And this was the finalization of my career. It was at the end, you know, I was in my forties. This was, this was, there was no, there was never no comeback to, to do it again. And so it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And we changed it to a, to a local event uh, here in Portland, Oregon. And then, you know, they said, okay, can only have 25 people. It was like a couple days prior to that. So it's like, okay, we'll turn this into a live stream. What do we do? Because I can't, what, are, you know, what are the choices? So it was live streamed on a Saturday, Monday, everything shut down. And so that was, it's a good thing I did it when I did, because it definitely was never going to happen uh, any other time. So that there was a documentary that was being filmed on that, as well as kind of the the background of why I am the way that I I am through my life story, which is in my best selling book, The Eagle and the Dragon, uh, told through interviews. But now that available that on Amazon.com right now. What's that? I said available on Amazon.com and other popular play, uh, yeah. <laughs> places. My books right now. Yes. Thank you. Um, so the documentary got delayed because of travel to f- finish the interviews and do all the other stuff. So it's been a, it's been a little slow, but it's uh, going to be releasing this summer. So um, yeah. Awesome. And um, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to have you back, um, Chris, when it comes out, if you want, um, you, you just let me know. Cause of course there's the entire athlete part of who you are. And then there's the entire sort of who you are, as a whole. And so if I sort of go back to this question about, you know, when did you know you were different? I, you certainly know that even as a very young man, and there's not very many 21 year old guys who legally adopt their siblings and care for them until they can uh, uh, get their sea legs and, and move forward in their own lives. That is, that is an extraordinary thing. There are very few people who grow up uh, literally in the fucking woods 
homeless. Um, and the first home you've ever really been in is one you buy, barring a, a mobile yeah. home for a little while. Yeah, that, you're, that, that that's barely that's functional. really interesting. You're, you're, I've never even thought about that. That's correct. Yeah, that's. Yeah. You've never thought about the first home that you really were in is one that you had to buy. Yeah. So how is it you're not fucking nuts? Like, like, like tied up electric shock treatment nuts. Well, I'm not saying that I don't have issues uh, to deal with. We all do. Uh, but yeah, of, uh, when you talk about forms of trauma, I've experienced nearly every type of some, you know, when they talk about like the, the nine major, uh, forms, like raise my hand. Yeah. But to me, it's, you can't control those things, you know, and I know stoicism is a pretty common uh, topic these days. And I didn't get exposure to that when I was younger, but I, I knew that I had to separate my mentality from the things that my environment, the things that happened to me and understanding that really who I am is like my, how I respond to things in the world, how I present myself and the separation and understanding that if those things have happened, just like I started lifting very early on, like that imposed demand creates a response. It creates life. It creates you to become a stronger person. And so, yeah, there's some negative stresses that maybe cause, you know, trauma and things that are, make it challenged to overcome from. But if it's already happened, why not try to use that to leverage to become a better a better person, to become more resilient, to know that you've been through that and you can take on more. And and we all have a different base level ability. So maybe my base level ability to handle that stuff was a little higher. And that's why I didn't end up, you know, dead or in prison and so on. But every one of us has the ability to use this concept, which is to, to acclimate to stress, to acclimate to an imposed demand. So I use the analogy in like the strength training world. You don't just walk into the gym and, you know, squat 225 for 50 reps. You know, if that's your goal, like day one, it doesn't, doesn't happen. You won't have enough resilience to overcome that. It'll beat you up. But if you go in and push yourself, you'll adapt, you'll get a little stronger. And over time you'll develop it. It's cumulative. And so it's about making sure that you've got that you continue to do that. You need to keep pulsing the level of, of things in your life that are going to challenge you, things that are going to scare you that, hey, walking into that in challenging workout scares me a little bit. I don't know if I can pull that off. But once you do, like, man, I can handle, I can handle a little bit more next time. And making sure that you have the time off to recover, but not too much. Again, looking at a, a workout. If I take a weekend off to spend with the family, I'm going to come back better. If I take if I hit it hard for three, four months and I take a vacation and I go to Arizona for a week and chill, like I'm going to come back mentally refreshed and recovered. Now, if I go hang in the Bahamas for four months, drinking my ties nonstop and come back, I'm going to be soft. I'm going to be weak. I'm going to like, when does the process of atrophy start? Nearly. Hey, don't, don't say those horrible things about me, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, and it's, it, and I'm talking about this from the physical nature. I'm not, I'm, this is not meathead stuff. This is this is body, mind, and soul. It is the genesis of life as a whole, actually, because that is the only thing that life does is it works against the environment. It overcomes it. And without it, 
you'll end up with something like the trees they'd plant in the biodomes for a long time. They couldn't figure out why they grow to a certain height and fall over because there was nothing beating against it, telling it to grow the roots strong and deep into the ground. There was nothing like this is, it, it, it's not ethereal. This is the, the phys- human physiology and the physiology of life that we have to have stress to be able to adapt to create growth, which is life. And what happens when we break our arm and put it in a cast? You, your arm's going to start to atrophy. Like you take the cast off and that's what's happened. Now the bone healed because it had a stress imposed on it. And that sent the signaling for it to repair itself. But now if I continue to left it, leave it in that cast for years, the bone would get weak and brittle and break as well. So these are fundamental concepts. And so I had, I had that as my life, like very early on. And so understanding that, that to be at the level I am at today, like I was a strong individual in my twenties, but there was no way I could take on what I do in the world today. Right. There was no way that I had to, to build one block on top of the next. And so this is something you don't have to have a crazy background like I do to do phenomenal things, but you'll have to understand these concepts. And this is something everyone can do. And, and so that's, uh, that is something I really just try to, to strike home and, and with people. And that is something, again, I had the experience to awaken me to concepts like this during my life. And I think that that's one thing that I did really well over the course of my life is a lot of introspection. And that's what my book does is guides people towards a, these, this introspection, because the bigger piece of this, you talked about home and meaning is like this understanding, like who you are in the world and what, what you want to do, the way that you want to live. And so here I am, you know, I believe so much in these. And then in the truth is it was very early. I've got the Eagle and the Dragon is the name of the book. I've got, I had a tattoo done between 18 to 20 of a giant eagle across my stomach and one across my back. And they're, they're, they're shackled with a chain that runs down to a shackle on my ankle. And I had that done because that was my message to myself. There was these two eagles trying to take flight and that those eagles could fly to whatever heights. I could fly to whatever heights that I wanted. The only thing holding myself back at the end of the day was myself. And to let myself loose to be able to, to find and understand my strengths was like, that was, that was something very early and very big and powerful in my life. If I had like this giant 40 hour tattoo nearly covering my body. Well, the second one, this relates to your comment around home. is I had another tattoo done at 40 years old or 38 years old. If this giant Ouroboros, this dragon that wraps around my chest, my shoulders, my arms, my back, around to the front. And the Ouroboros is this animal that is eating itself. And that sounds a bit macabre, but it's, it's, it's not. It is reinventing itself. It is becoming anew. It is the continual renewal of life. And for me, it's the specific, deciding specifically who you want to be in this world and becoming that person. So here I am. I have a home. I've got two kids. I've got a comfortable marriage. I've got a job, a career that I'm, I, I, I'm doing really well at. I'm sought, sought after. I've got this life. This poor kid from the sticks proved to the world that I could be successful. And I walked away from it. 
I walked away from every, I was number, I was ranked number one in the world as an athlete for years straight at this point as well. I quit competitive lifting. I walked away from my career. I exited some close relationships in my life, friendships. I asked my wife for a divorce. I left everything and I, there I was. I was living in a house with a white picket fence, but I realized it was someone else's dreams and there was a different set of drivers for me. And even though I asked my wife for a divorce, the sense of family was a big driver for me. I wanted that at the forefront. And that is something that, that I didn't have there. And so we maintained our relationship really well, putting the kids at the front. But just because you have family doesn't necessarily mean you have the sense of family. And that's why I use that as one of my, my, my driving core values. And the word core values gets overused quite a bit, but these are the things that you really need to understand. You mentioned security earlier. In my book, I use this story because the hustle porn sells so much. The go get your fancy car and your 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 mansion and all this stuff and screw the haters because you know, get what you want. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, if you want material things, there's no problem with that. But understand why you want those material things. Let's just do a thought experiment. If you want those things and you don't understand the driver behind maybe you wanting those things is maybe you lived a life like me and knowing that if I had those things, I would be in a spot that I wouldn't have to worry about the next paycheck, the next thing that I'm going to have to be, to be able to take care of myself and my family. And if I don't understand that and I just focus on those things, I can over leverage myself to, to get that and then be, Hating my, like, why am I hating my life? Why am I depressed? Why do I have so much anxiety? What, what happened? I got what I was supposed to, what I always wanted. Well, I didn't. And so this is the, the, the really important thing with pulling back the layers of this onion. And it doesn't have to be material things. It could be a job, a title, an accomplishment, uh, so many things, a degree. Why do you want those things? And asking yourself over and over and over again until you get to this set of things that are not things that you can ever have. They're things you can always get closer to, which is super important because that is how you guide your life to make sure that every day you're able to put one foot or every week, one foot in front of the next towards this. And so what are those things? You know, for me, security is a big driver. Since a family is a huge one, but the things that I didn't have with my career, you know, creative outlet, the ability, yeah, I was in leadership roles, but the ability to, to inspire others to accomplish more than they want. I got that out of the kind of the coaching mentoring. That's what you do in turnarounds, by the way, it's not, it's not some fancy, you've obviously got, you know, you know, plans around business and other things, but you change people, you change, you, you change culture, you change companies. Um, so, you know, I had some of that, but I didn't have really the true, like what that means to me, uh, creativity, the sense of family. Like I was drawn in so many different directions because I owned a gym. I was competing high level as one of the, the best strength athletes in the world. I was working as a corporate executive. I had my hobbies for my creative outlet and my kids were starting to get a little older. It's like, where am I going to have time for all this? What's got to give? Well, got to quit my job. Um, and, but. Obviously, 
sense of accomplishment or uh, a challenge in my life. These are other big drivers for me. Recognition, like, so I'm naming off for me, what are some of these big drivers? And once you understand that, now you can start setting goals and everybody wants to put the cart in front of the horse and start with goal setting and like time management so that you can create time to, to do more. And it's not about doing more. It's actually about doing less and getting those things aligned so that they're all feeding that. So you have to understand, do the introspection and understand what those values are, those drivers. I hate it because core values, North Star, all this stuff gets used so much, but nobody really truly understands the depth and reality of what those mean. But when I talk about one foot in front of the other, if you don't understand this stuff, like you're going to sit there. We love to fill our life, especially if we're, we're stressed, we're unhappy. We, we love to do things to make us ourselves feel like we're accomplishing things, bucket lists, checking stuff off, getting things done, but you can be super busy and not move anything for months, years, even decades towards those things that you want. Next thing you know, you look in your rear view mirror and you're like, wow, where, where did things go? And that's, that's what I call letting life live you. Most people are very busy not living their lives, right? Yeah. That's letting life live you. And there's a, yes, there's an article. This is how I actually got my, my funding and my scholarships to go to college is I wrote an essay to a newspaper and I talked a bit about my life and they're like, well, we're not giving you the, uh, the scholarship, but we're going to do a front page article on you. And I remember that was actually one of my quotes, uh, back then at like 17 years old was these, these, these concepts. And, and yeah, we, you chase something like that's usually what I was taking over for, for people that in a company that wasn't successful, the person was working really hard. They were doing tons of stuff, but it was not aligned, not the right direction, not, not pointed. And so I would come in and do nothing and fi try to find all the things that weren't that I didn't, that I was told that I needed to do, but were non-essential. It's going to come back if it's important. There's a process in, uh, it's called 5S that's used in manufacturing worlds. And I think outside of that now these days, but it's a Japanese philosophy post-World War II uh, came out of, from Edward Dimming and some other stuff. But to create an efficient workspace, you take everything out, not the opposite, not make sure you got all the tools and pack it all in there and giant toolboxes full of stuff. You remove everything and you then bring back the thing that you need and you put it right there at the point of use. And then the next thing, and you just, you refine it and all the extra, uh, this helps in the process. And if you do this in your life and other ways, you'll find it's, it's a really valuable lesson that you fill your time with so many things that you think that you need to do, but are they really aligned with that? And do you really need them in, in your life? Is it, is it habit? Is it the things that's just making you feel like you're moving forward? And it's not, I'm horrible at time management but I do phenomenal amounts of things in this world because everything fits together. Yes. It's funny. I, uh, I've thought about that as I've grown older because my productivity now compared to when I was an operating executive, if you watched me during the day, you'd go, well, 
you know, I, I can remember getting off planes, Chris, and as I was sort of putting down my laptop and the person next to me would look at me and go, I've never seen somebody work like that on a plane for six hours straight. Like, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, I got shit to do, right? I mean, I was that kind of an yeah. executive. Hair on fire Today, executive, if you were to watch yeah. me... Well, what what hair I had, yeah. But uh, today, if you watch me, you go, hey, that guy behaves like the big Lebowski. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, on the move the needle front, on the make a difference front, I make an infinitely bigger difference today than I ever did when I was, you know, grinding. And, and let's let's talk about that for a second too, because what you're doing. To me, this is a business podcast, right? It, business to me is the ultimate expression of art. So business today is the way that you can take those values that you have and actually put those into the world. It's the way that you can take your vision for what you see now and what you see in the future of the world and being able to create that change, create that environment, uh, both internally within the culture, within your company, as well as the outward expression of that elsewhere. And you think about art, like that is art. And in this world today, it is the ultimate expression of art of being able to take your future vision and your mixed with your values and expressing that in the world today and actually bring about that change. And I think Simon Sinek does some really great, you know, discussions about like money not being the end goal, but the facilitator of really the the business goal. But to me, I, that speaks really well to that, to that, and in, in the fact that that is what are you trying to accomplish with your work and the ability of like how big is that impact on the world? And right now, like what you're doing has a substantial big impact of helping people in the way that you want to help in enacting that change in the world. And, and that's massive, right? Uh, versus, you know, cranking on that laptop every, every second that you get. Right. So it's just an interesting thought process. And that's like my view uh, uh, around like my businesses are all an output of the way that I want to live and the, the, the things that I want to do in the world and my values. And, and that's to me, makes me a really successful. I'm not a multimillionaire. Yes. I'm not like many things and that's, that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't need that. And, you know, my, my goal personally is I want to change the face of fitness. I want to change so that there's so many things for a long time that have left people broken the way that we have done things and trying to push people through the same, same box and the disconnect, the silos of clinical care versus the training versus the tools that are used, nothing be along the line. And that's literally how, that's how I create accomplished the things that I do or I did like uh, the, the big squat, and the big deadlift. I'm a big believer walking the walk, not just being a, a research in the science, but like prove it, walk it out. Right. And, and so that was, but to do that, like I have so much continuing ed, it, you know, that I, that I have like, okay, I'm an engineer, but I'm, I'm a leading authority on biomechanics, on understanding uh, neurology and recovery and rehabilitation methods, developmental kinesiology. Uh, these are things like I lecture at uh, at a PhD level in chiropractic, physical therapy, continuing ed in those environments because I had to learn it to because there are these very distinct different things that need to fit together that tie to 
And so as an output of that, I've had to invent my own tools because the lens that I see, these things are glaringly obvious. I, I do a lot of it in physics, playground physics and preschool type stuff, but we're trying to shove these round pegs through square holes. Like people are different. The underlying philosophies of how we move and how we load is the same, but we need to be able to individualize this. We need to be able to connect the dots between the person doing the clinical components and and how they're doing their assessment versus a movement based or a fascial based, and what's happening on a, a neurological input from the the tool that we're using in the the training modality. And I know I'm kind of getting a little into the the, the deep ends here on some some topics, but that's that's what I do when people want to look at the big thing and go, oh, yo, yeah, there's a Guinness record. You, you, you can't see it, but there's a Guinness record sitting on the wall behind me. There's, I got a, a board fold with, you know, I work with, you know, every single major league baseball team there is and 90% of the NFL and NBA. And I did that in a matter of years by putting this concepts into place, right? But people want to look at like, oh, you're a guy that lifted, squatted heavy and deadlifted heavy or whatever, not realizing to do that. I spent decades evolving the methodology and getting to know the best people in the world on all those fronts, the people that are writing the textbooks that are then being used in the schools and then connecting the dots between all these diverse things to make that happen. And that's that's the change that I'm trying to bring. It's amazing that the the entrepreneur in you, the engineer in you and the athlete in you and the philosopher in you all came together to produce those results. And of course, now this is this is what you're trying to share. It's kind of a, it, it's just a fascinating journey that you've been on. And and maybe this is what I'm thinking, which is, you know, I'm somebody who grew up with a lot of nothing and wanted to have some something and went out and got that done. And early in my life, the question was, you know, is Christopher going to make it? And I decided I was going to an- answer that fucking question and then some. The interesting thing is, and this is building to a question, which is when you grow up with a lot of nothing and then you start to produce some something and then, you know, a reasonable amount of something and you've answered that question, is, is, is Christopher going to make it? You had to answer your version of that question. I had to answer mine. What nobody in all of the success porn, hustle porn, personal development porn world ever really talks about is... You make it, whatever the fucking it was for you, then what? Right? So if you look at yourself, okay, great. Like you're a long way away from that kid who grew up in the trees. Yep. And the awards and the accolades and the financial rewards and your family and the people who love you and who you are in the community. I mean, if we had met you at 12 years old, we would not have anticipated that this kid who was living in the woods could possibly grow up to do any of this stuff. And so here's my question. As you've achieved this stuff, people seem to think that, oh, well, when you achieve some legendary shit, you're just going to move to a beach somewhere. Cause like that, the reward is work real hard, achieve some legendary shit so that you can fucking do nothing and get skin cancer. And the aha along the way is, no, 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 that's actually not the reward. The reward is I get to be me now because of what me then did. And me now gets to do some really cool fucking shit. 
And yes, do I want to take a vacation? Of course. Yes. In, in your case, Chris, you know, is it nice to not have to be peak training all the time to achieve something? You know, obviously you still train, but you don't train the way you used to. And maybe your diet's a little more relaxed than it used to be. And maybe you have a little more free time, you know, whatever the changes have been, it's not as intense. Right. And so the, the big aha though is the reason to achieve those results is not so that you get to stop doing the thing that you did to achieve those results. You achieve those results, it's fantastic, you become known for this incredible thing, but the reality is you love doing this shit, right? And that's the re- so the reward for doing it is that you get to keep doing it. Yes. It's so I, I laugh sometimes because it's hard because I play in so many realms, right? And so, you know, I'll be with my wife, you know, meeting maybe some new family or you're traveling somewhere and people ask you, you know, well, what do you do? It's like well, my job. Oh, my job is to be me. And that is the best explanation that I can have. That obviously makes no sense to another person at the time without any context. But like my job in this world is to be myself, to bring the things out, to do the work that, that I want to do. Like that's really empowering and that is a really great place to be because, you you know, when we talk, you know, switch to the, the hustle porn and the self-help porn and all this other stuff, it's all oftentimes about achieving the success of I'm a CEO, so much money. uh, I've got a PhD. I've got all these sorts of things. I'm an NFL athlete, whatever it is. And I think athletes are a great way to explain this because we see so many people that reach the end of their career. That was their definition. So they encompassed, instead of finding those values, they encompassed who they were into the definition of, oh, I'm a college professor, I'm an NFL athlete, I'm whatever it is. And it, it's one of the things that ends. And everything can be taken, taken away from you at any time. And we see a vast level not across the board, but much higher level than normal of people falling into depression, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide, all sorts of mental health issues when that happens because they're, they, they lost who they were versus doing the work of understanding this. And this is where it's like, so that you can, you can, you can express that in different ways. And that's why it's so important to do that before you create your goals because your goals are how you express those values. They're an expression. So my squat and deadlift were an expression of many things for me. It was an expression of my, you walk the walk. It was an expression of my putting together the mechanisms around being able to control and manage spinal mechanics. It was an expression of me having a challenge and competitive outlet and creativity with the goals. It was an expression for me of how I inspire other people that they can do more than that they think than people think is possible by doing something that nobody thought was possible. Well, when I got done with that, people were like, well, what's next? I said, I told you when I did that, that was it. I'm done with that. And they're like, well, no, you have to, this is what you do. You do amazing feats. This is why I followed you for the last, you know, decade and a half. And that's what you do. What, what's really next? What, what was the next crazy feat? What's, what is it? 
I'm like, let's to change the face of fitness and its integration through clinical care. Like, no, no, but what's that? I'm like, I can change those expressions and still live those values. I can still be me. I still train. I'm not pushing or have any desire I don't, to, to, to go do that again, but I still have grand goals. I still, and so uh, it, it, it's really important to, to do that. One, so that you've got a backup plan, but to be more successful, really successful. Again, that example I use for the security one is, is really useful, easier, but you know, Hey, I want to be an NFL athlete and any given Sunday with a game of tag football, that could be taken away from you. So I'm just playing further off of your, your statement here, but you're spot on. What does success allow you to do? It's to do more of it, to be you, to live in the way that you want, which again is gets back to why does the money not matter? Because this is an expression of your art. This is how you bring your worldview of the future as well as your, the inner, how that interacts with your values into the present world now. Wow. God damn. That's cool. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Now I would be remiss, Chris, if I didn't ask you the simple question, what does it feel like to lift a thousand fucking pounds? <laughs> what does that feel like? Oh my God. Well, uh, it feels like the world's going to come right through your shoulders and crush you into the ground. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things of acclimating, right? So it ties back to the concepts that I was talking for, because when you unrack that bar, like you can't breathe. It wants to crush you. It, it feels like you start breaking at the knees and the hips to go down in the squat and everything tells you that there's no way, but you know, because you've learned, you've practiced this state of being in fear. You, you have, I call it the practice of living in fear. And that's a, you know, that's how you know when to turn into things, but you know, to move forward. And so next thing you know, you're coming down and all of a sudden you're coming up and you're going, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's going up. I'm going to get this. It's going to be. And it's like this elation and surprise as well as needed expe expectation all at once. Right. And the completion of the list. And it's all over and done with in how many seconds, Chris? <laughs> uh, about 20 seconds. So 20 to 30 seconds. So I did this. Um, I did reps because like with this type of load, people that have done this. They've done it for a single. But I'm trying to demonstrate the ability to control and manage the spinal complex through my methodology. And so I wanted to do it longer. And it's so much harder to do during uh, once for, for, it seems, you know, just a few repetitions, but it's a substantial increase in the challenge. So it's not one for one. It's exponential with each yes. lift. Yep. And you're not re just to be clear, right? You're not re racking in between. No. no. So your body is going and your muscles are firing and your brain is firing for the entire lift. And then you don't put it back and then you do another one. That's correct. Yeah. And then that starts closing. The world starts closing on you. You start going black. Like it's, it's, it's something else to do, but it, the preparation for it is the, the, the more challenging part. Cause people often ask like, so how hard was that? You know, how long did it take you to recover from it? And it's like, well, actually that was really easy. They're like, what? You have to look at what I did to get there and the frequency, the intensity, the training like that was a light day. It was one set. 
but everything leading up to it was horrific to be able to withstand what put me through the developmental so I could just walk out and do that that day. Yeah, the weight still felt like it was going to crush through me. When it re- when I re-racked the bar, I burst into tears, just bawling, crying because I was so, so emotional, so much pent up emotion around how long and how hard I'd worked for this and the, the execution of it. And then the letdown of just the letdown is the wrong word, but the come down from the intense emotional excitement to be able to pull off the lift to begin with, which is a whole nother discussion around uh, performance and, and neurology, neurotransmitters and, and, and related. But like, once you're able to channel and create such level of intensity coming out of that is like a really interesting experience because you're, you're separated for those, that, that time that you're performing that lift in the few seconds in preparation for that, you're not in this world. You've created your ability to disconnect and also cue things to happen in a physiological state that are dropping, dropping dopamine. They're dropping massive amounts of adrenal and all this stuff is actually happening to create this performance uh, environment, which comes from a lot of practice and meditative state to, to do this. And that sounds like, oh, it's a lot to just go in the gym and lift weights and understand like what I was doing is not just going in the lift and pushing really hard. Like this is doing something that hasn't been done before. And that level is reaching, you're in another spot. And then coming out of that is just like this. Whew, and you'll, yeah, it's incredibly emotionally. I mean, just like I said, I'll, I was balling up a storm afterwards. <laughs> no, uh, no doubt. Th- thank you for taking me into that. I can't help but sort of have a little bit of my, uh, you don't need to be a Sigmund Freud on to notice something about your arc of your life, which is, you know, as a kid, you are living in fear, lack of security, lack of all the things we discussed. And I would imagine because you're not eating much, you're skinny and you feel weak. And particularly when you compare yourself to comparable uh, boys at school, you're going to school with and the clothes you're wearing. And I've, I've heard you say in the past, you didn't exactly smell great. And so like, this is who you are as a boy. Yes. Yeah. And, and hold on before you, before you respond, let me just, let me just do the contrast. So the day you do, you break the world record and you do the multiple lifts of the thousand on that day, you are literally the strongest man in the world. And part of how you had to get there was you ate like a, like a tribe of horses every day. So you, so my point is the juxtaposition from one end to the other is extraordinary. One of the weakest, skinniest kids in the world who hardly eats to literally the strongest man in the world who eats like more than most families who's in a very stable, obviously successful environment. You can't achieve as an athlete, Never mind all the other things you were doing in your life when you, when you broke those records. And so do you ever think about sort of the juxtaposition of the from to, from who you were to who you are? Yes. And it can be a little surreal at times. Like I'll, I'll have to take a step back and this is this is actually kind of what spurred me to write my book to begin with. I'd done some 
you know, things with interviews and small stories of my life. And I, I had received tremendous feedback from people, it having a very positive impact on people that are struggling and dealing with issues. But, you know, taking on like writing a book is a whole nother level as well, also a whole nother level of openness to, to really dive in there. Right. But I was sitting there watching my kids starting to grow through those ages that I was. And that's actually when I finally started processing a lot of this stuff, because now I'm looking at them and I'm realizing, wow, I can't imagine my children being now seeing them at that age, being in an environment that I was and the surrealness of that. And then the sadness it brought to me, um, was uh, the sadness around thinking about them in that brought me to the position of like writing this book and writing it in such a fashion as to help people, to help people that are struggling with whatever challenge it is in life and hardship to be able to frame it in the right mindset. But to your question, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's like another world. Like when I tell my story, it is literally like me telling a story of something else because I, it's so disconnected from the way that I am. But also I want to touch on the Freudian like piece of that because yeah, I mean, the judgments that I, or maybe perceived judgments that I had as a child with, you know, clothes that were dirty, me smelling, not like, uh, I, I was the, the kid that lived in a trailer down by the river, like whatever. And a lot of it may it, it being my personal like view of what people thought of, of, of myself or my family, but there's the reality of it too. Like things that were said to me and the, the clear judgments made by teachers and other kids at school and, you know, a store when you walk in or any number of things. And so, yeah, you take that and you go, okay, here's this guy that was that um, from this poor family that people are going to consider, you know, uh, you know, stupid, not going to be successful, going to end up with all these issues. And what did I do? I went out and proved that I could be stronger than everybody. I could outperform you mentally. I could outperform you in business. You name it. I'm going to beat you. Like, where do you think that was from? Yeah, that is some clear, like me dealing with some personal issues. The fact that, all right, you're going to judge me or my belief that you're judging me, but I am going to best you in every, every single aspect that you could think of. Yeah. I think that's a big driver of <laughs> why I've, why I've done what I've done in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. It makes me wonder, you know, uh, it's the experience that I have. Of course, my story is different than yours, but that experience of, of, of growing up with not a lot, of having uh, learning differences, uh, and of all those things ultimately, and being feeling like you've been counted out and shat on and all that stuff, equals A, chip on shoulder, yep. B, fuck yeah, I'll show you. And, you know, I got thrown out of school when I was 18, but Stanford wants me to come lecture there, you assholes, right? There's a... Yep. Like, and so that, that F you, I'm going to show you, that's a very strong thing for you. Yes, Chris. Yeah, it is. I, I, you know, I, it would be remiss of me to not be able to acknowledge that. Right. I mean, that's, how can that not be involved with who I am? I can't say that's a positive thing, 
you know, that it's obviously <laughs> well, some unresolved things in my, my own uh, psyche and life, but at the same time, it has allowed me to develop to a level of credibility and authority around the things that I do now that I can use that to share these things of what I believe are going to help people live in a better fashion of live a better quality of life, both physically, as well as help people deal with things uh, that they may not. I mean, like, it is so empowering to, to have people read your written words and go, you saved me from committing suicide. You helped me start my own business. You helped me like so many over and over and over again. Like, and, and that is, that's the big driver for me. Look back at my history, you know, taking care of my sisters and doing things like that at a very early age. Like these are, that th that is also fundamentally a huge component of who I am. And so the successes I have, have allowed me to be in a position to have that impact on much a much broader scale. No doubt. Well, this has been great, Chris. Uh, clearly, we, we could talk for a very long time. I'm curious, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? We hit a ton of information. So uh, there's there's so many avenues. Uh, I think we should do another one sometime and uh, kind of refine uh, a few other topics. But we could do another one if you want when the movie comes out. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get into some more of the training things and and how that relates to life and what you what uh, athletic advice you'd give to mere mortals who aren't trying to uh, pick up buses and throw them across canyons and shit. <laughs> well, that's most of my most of my work is not um, meant for people like myself. Right. It's, it is. Yeah, of course not. It, of course. It, 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 you know, it's for the 65 year old grandmother that has never lifted a weight in her life, but is in, can't pick up her grandchild. It is like, it, it's so many, like I right. want, you know, the number one healthcare cost in America is low back pain. And that is something that we have the potential to manage and drive ourselves. And so anyway, we haven't kind of touched on that, uh, on a lot of things related to, to how I have tools and education that helps people empower them. My big belief is the body, mind, and soul, but the physical nature of that. So I just want to, I'd like to just leave it with uh, directing people to some resources to, to, to dig in for more, find out some stuff. And uh, yeah. So chrisduffin.com, that's like muffin, but with a D, D-U-F-F-I-N, go there. Sign up for the email list and you will get one, the first part of my book, absolutely free. Well, not free. You give me your email. Uh, <laughs> um, on there, you'll see the, uh, the trailer, uh, the trailer for the movie that's coming out, which is really cool. Yeah. It's very well done, Chris. Thank the you. trailer's fantastic. And then, um, uh, you'll get, uh, uh, free, uh, educational resources for my, my three companies, which is Kabuki Strength. Kabuki Strength does all the education on the biomechanics of movement and loading. We do coaching, but we offer tons of stuff free nearly every day. You were really one of the first athletes that I can remember who started to talk about movement. And today we hear about movement coaches and it's popular in yeah. uh, mixed martial arts and boxing and so forth and so on. But you've been talking about movement for a very long time. So yeah, that's in that, like my second company is barefoot with a bear. Like imagine a kid running around uh, the, uh, uh, the woods, which is essentially what it is, but it's a minimalist shoe company as well, because we talked about spine, 
the foot and ankle complex is the second in my priority system because they have the largest global impact on the body. And why are we why are we wearing heels? <laughs> exactly. We're wearing heels because it's a <laughs> guys wear heels and don't even realize they're wearing heels. So what do you think a dress shoe is or for that matter, the average Nike? You're wearing heels, right? You know why? You know why there's a heel in a Nike? I, I do, but I want to hear you say, tell it. Tell okay. me anyway. <laughs> so, because I heard it from you for the first okay. time, but I want to hear it from you live. Yeah. So, uh, heels and pointed toes were in shoes. Why? Because we rode horses. So the heel was for the stirrup to sit, and the toe was so that you could kick the horse as well. And so that rolled into fashion. So you see these dress shoes that literally are not in the shape of human feet at all. So we're literally deforming it. And if you think it's a matter of like fit, it's not. Go pull up the print of your baby foot. Well, your mother probably has it somewhere. And you'll see the natural shape of your foot. And that's how your foot would look if it wasn't deformed by the wearing these shoes your entire life. But they, from fashion, you had that. Now, the running craze hit, the, the born to run uh, in the sixties as, as Nike was taking off and they had a problem and that was they're having people that were getting injured and they're like, well, what are we going to do? The reason they're getting injured is so many people were moving out of this environment to running was becoming crazed. People hadn't really done it. And they had a shortened gastroc and soleus calf muscles because they've been walking around with heels. So we've talked a lot about adaptation and strength. What do you have to do? You have to build to it. You can't just go start moving something full tipped. It has to adapt. And so the question is, what do we do? Well, I'm not sure if they considered the option of doing education, but they chose and made the specific choice. There was a podiatrist who recommended, well, put a heel in it so that you're not asking them to use that resource in its full range of motion the way that it's supposed to be used. And thus, it has continued band-aids. And now, because of the heel, it does a couple other things too. So now you have to, because of the raised foot, you have to raise the toe a little bit because to have the reach for running and walking, which again, uh, because of that heel. This is why my hips are tilted forward, yes. right, Chris? So it tilts the hips. So uh, it, causes an, it causes an overstride. <laughs> Uh, and then the overstride causes you to have an opening. It's called an open scissor, but it's the relationship between the pelvis to the diaphragm. They're supposed to be parallel to each other. And when they open, uh, what that does is it breaks down the stabilization mechanisms of how we eccentrically load that cavity. You'll notice there's no big, large bone structure in there like your hips and shoulders. Like there's just a little tiny spine. It's stabilized through pressure that's created. It drives out eccentrically against the the it's the outer sheath of muscle, but it's the 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 abdominals, the thoracolumbar musculature, all these things creating this pressure, three hundred and sixty degrees. Well, if you have a spike or an opening, it doesn't work effectively, and now we have that. So, all this stuff ends up leading to back pain, hip pain, knee pain, and all these problems because we're actually what happens if we go. If you go use a muscle, what does it do? It gets stronger and more resilient. Well, if your elbow's hurting and you go, well, it's hurting, so I'm going to go wrap it with a, a wrap, the rest is going to help it feel better, like taking your weekend off. But if I leave the wrap on there, I wake up every morning, I put it on month over month, the arm's going to get weaker, which is going to cause it to have more issues. And it's going to make other parts of the body have problems too as they compensate. Well, that's what happens when you package your foot and go, well, every other part of the body we're supposed to use, but except for the foot, you know, we've got this science. 
that's going to make the foot. You, you have to put it in here. You have to push the arch up. You have to do all this stuff to make it function right. It being weak is the cause of your problem. So being able to use strengthen so that it creates adaptation and strength and be able to manage itself. All you got to do is use the foot appropriately, allow it to get stronger. And a lot of this stuff will, will dissipate. And so it basically don't, don't argue with me. Like you'd believe this, you know, this for every other part of your body, what makes the foot different and the data supports it. So let's just take the whole entire orthotics industry. All right. We believe that orthotics are the fix for, you know, um, a lot of things foot related, oh, beautiful science. And we believe that because the orthotics industry is in the hospitals. I know I sound like an anti-vaxxer here, but just follow with me for a minute, right? Uh, they're in the schools. I think anti-orthoticers are different than anti-vaxxers. Yeah, they're, they're in the schools <laughs> teaching, uh, you know, students as they come out. A meta-analysis of all data on orthotics shows that they provide no long-lasting support whatsoever outside of the six or eight week period of temporary relief, which is exactly what happens if I wrap my elbow. This science, there's no supporting evidence whatsoever, but it's a band-aid because if you raise the heel up and you raise the toe up, we lose control of the foot because it doesn't have the stabilization mechanisms. We've turned them off. So then you collapse in the art. So you have to build, these are all band-aids built around fixing the bad problem uh, to begin with, which and the, an the answer is a shoe that works for our foot, right? A shoe that works for along with acclimating to it. So not jump, don't like, yes. oh, I'm going to put a minimalist shoe on. I'm a runner. I run 20 miles a day. I'm going to put it on and go run. Right. That's, I've never squatted before. I'm going to go in the gym and squat 25 for 50 reps. Uh, no. Because your foot's not used to it. So you got to stair step into it. it. You have to shrink it. Same, same thing. Treat it like the rest of the body. You have to acclimate. You have to adapt. All right, brother. Anything else? That's it. Appreciate the time today. It was a blast. Thank you. Thank you. And keep doing what you do. You're a legend. Thank you, sir. Well, there he is. The legendary Chris Duffin. The book is called The Eagle and the dragon, a story of strength and reinvention, the eagle and the dragon. And I highly recommend it. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation with Chris, then why not share it with somebody you care about? We believe that uh, conversations make a difference and that we are in a, uh, let's just call it a dialogue recession. <laughs> and the more legendary, inspiring, motivating dialogues that we can consume that educate us, the better. So long story short, please share this episode with the people that you love and admire. All right. We would like to thank you. Of course, thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means everything to, my, to me and all of us here. Uh, I also want to thank my friends at Clary. Clary is the revenue platform that empowers you to run revenue like an enterprise process. Now, marketing, sales, customer success, and finance teams can work together to collaborate and govern revenue. Check out Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com today. That's Clary.com. My friends at Atranet uh, offer the rapid relaunch program for your new uh, website. So if you are in the B2B business in Silicon Valley, check out atre.net. That's atre.net. And uh, your spouse just texted and uh, they said it's great. Go to lockhead.com and you can subscribe to Category Pirates right now. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. 
Uh, warning, we are obliged by the state of California to uh, let you know that the creators and producers of this podcast were probably consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo, and... If you want to do legendary podcasting, Jason is opening a new studio in L.A. that he can host you in person or remotely. So check out Jason.FYI to check out Jason's new studio in the Los Angeles area. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build uh, our website. Uh, GM Simon uh, does our wonderful show notes. And the Bovis Brothers do our web development, RJ and EX. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Uh, We want to thank our friends at Squadcast.fm. They are the platform that we use for... uh, doing these oddcasts for you. Uh, Don't forget that Margaret Atwood was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Please teach uh, kids to weightlift. And remember, for the love of God, get out of the left-hand lane. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much again. Please stay healthy. Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.